I'm, well, I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee right now. So it's about five hours. I teach at Covenant College. Look, I'm out in Georgia. I'm Brian Fickert, and I'm the founder and executive director of something called the Chalmers Center at Covenant College. We're a research and training center that seeks to equip churches to help the poor, to help themselves through their own work. So I'm just doing this little workshop here on asset-based community development. Real spread out. That makes me really nervous. Oh, by the way, I'm six foot ten. Those of you who are wondering, um, uh, and I also have to apologize for something. I, um, if you come to the main session tonight, there's a little bit of redundancy between what I'm doing right now and and tonight in the plenary because I, um, the idea would be that we did the plenary and then we did this after that. But there's some background theory that we have to have to make uh, this workshop make sense. And so uh, forgive me. Uh, well, tonight, actually, you can skip like the first 15 minutes of the plenary if you want to. Just come in late. It'll be okay. Maybe the first 20 or 30, actually. I'm not sure. So um, as we think about working amongst the poor, as we think about working amongst the poor around the world in the area of health and even beyond, there's many things that we want to see, but, but certainly we want to see communities flourishing. We want to see communities flourishing because as communities flourish, people in those communities flourish in terms of their physical health, but in all sorts of ways. And one of the really difficult things about trying to make that happen is that it is exceedingly difficult to work amongst the poor in ways that are simultaneously powerful and impactful and sustainable. That sustainability issue is just so difficult. And one of the ways that we can try to achieve sustainability in our work amongst the poor, in the area of health or in any sector, quite frankly, is by using an asset-based approach to community development. But to understand why this is a a helpful approach, I've got to back up. I'm a Presbyterian, so for me, everything is deductive and linear. All right? Very logical. Very logical. We'll have to form a committee to get through this particular workshop in rational fashion. So we've got to start back before the beginning. I want to start back with God. Some of you are just going, I just want to learn about asset-based community development. i got to start with God. It turns out that that this approach to working with the poor is rooted in the very nature of God himself. One of the things that we know about God is this, that from all eternity, God is triune. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost exist from all eternity in relationship with one another. God is inherently a relational being. He's wired human beings in his image. He's wired us for relationship as well. This diagram, I'm an economist, and so, so if, if there's not a diagram, it doesn't count. You have to have a diagram. This diagram is trying to represent a biblical understanding of what a human being is. What the Bible teaches is that human beings are made in the image of God, and because we are made in his image, and because he himself is relational... We are wired for relationship. What the Bible teaches us is that we have four key relationships with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. That we are wired to experience relationships with God, self, others, and the rest of creation in the way that God designed those relationships to be experienced. 
I'll be talking about that a little bit more in the plenary session today. So I'm going to kind of skim real fast here, just give you a quick overview. The idea here is that when we experience these relationships in the way that God intended, it feels right. It fits good. We're square pegs in square holes. It's what we're made for. It's what we're wired for. And we'll talk about those relationships a little bit more later on tonight, but, but very, very briefly... One of the key relationships there is our relationship with ourselves. We're to see ourselves as people with inherent dignity and worth because we're made in the image of God. Our relationship with creation is to be one of stewardship. We're to have dominion over creation to develop and unpack and unfold the creation in the way that God intended. The idea here is that when these relationships are operating properly, we experience humanness in the way that God intended. We're square pegs and square holes. Out of these relationships, we create culture. We create business, art, families. The Green Bay Packers, God's team, as a reflection of the pure relationships in Green Bay, Wisconsin, that understand how God wired football to be. Now you're awake. We create culture, we create economic, political, religious, and social systems as expressions of our fundamental commitments to God, self, others, and the rest of creation. What I'm arguing right now is that the foundations of a culture are how people understand and live out their relationships with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. To live those relationships properly is partly, a, a, is, is partly having a biblical worldview, partly understanding how those relationships are supposed to work, but it's something deeper. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the affections. How do we love God? How do we love ourselves? How do we love others? How do we love the rest of creation? Folks, if you want to bring about sustainable development, you've got to get down to this deep relational level and to the heart of a human being. The Bible teaches that out of the heart flow the issues of life. But what we read in the Genesis account is that immediately all four relationships are broken. All four relationships are broken. Adam and Eve experience a poverty of spiritual intimacy. They, they have to hide from God. Broken relationship with self, a poverty of being. People are broken in their relationship with themselves. For many, many, many poor people around the world, this expresses itself in a sense of shame, in a sense of inferiority, in a sense of a lack of capacity, in a sense of I, I'm not... I don't have agency to be able to affect change in my environment. A poverty of community. People are at enmity with one another. Adam and Eve, of course, have this. Adam starts to blame Eve. Poverty with the rest of creation. Adam is told thorns will infest the ground. Eve is told to be pains in childbearing. All four relationships are broken. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. As a result, the systems that human beings create are broken as well. One of the things we're going to talk about this evening is that if poverty is rooted in broken relationships, then you and I are poor too. Because we too are suffering the effects of the fall. Very, very briefly, what I want to kind of point out a little bit later on tonight as well, is that second relationship, the broken relationship with self. Because most poor people experience this in the top row as a marred identity, a sense of shame, a sense of inferiority. For the rest of us, we're all on the bottom row. We tend to experience a broken relationship with ourselves in terms of pride and superiority. 
And when people who have a sense of pride interact with people who have a sense of shame, it's a bad mix. Because the way that we speak to them, the things that we do to them, communicate to them, you're right. You're less than human. You need me to fix you. And so the way that we are broken exacerbates the way that they are broken. And as we rush in and take over, they tend to get more passive. They tend to step back. They tend to say, I guess the outsiders have to fix me. And as they do that, we get more disgusted with them. We start to look at them as people who don't have any initiative, as people who don't have any get up and go. And so the way that we're broken and the way that they're broken are, if you will, codependent with one another. So we've got to get out of that dynamic. I'm, I'm impressed with this definition of poverty. I'm going really fast because I, I want to get through some introductory stuff to get to some other stuff. I believe that poverty is rooted in broken relationships. Okay, so that when we look at the materially poor, poverty is rooted in relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty, for me, is rooted in the brokenness that each human being experiences with God's self, others, and the rest of creation. Which means that poverty alleviation is fundamentally about reconciling relationships. Poverty alleviation is not solely about going and dispensing penicillin. It's not solely about giving shots and taking blood pressures. As important as those things are, and they are very important. But to get at a sustainable development solution, we've got to get down to the grassroots. To the, to the roots that are under the ground, I should say. And those roots have to do with broken relationships, which means that poverty alleviation is about reconciling relationships, both for the materially poor and for me, because I'm broken too. Suddenly, poverty alleviation isn't so much about me going and dispensing penicillin. Suddenly, poverty alleviation is about me walking with the poor and Jesus Christ showing up and bring healing to both parties. It's a different kind of posture. With that background, you're going to get more of that tonight, a little more depth. With that background, there's three concepts I'm going to look at here very, very briefly. The first is the difference between relief and rehab and development. The second is asset-based and needs-based development. The third is participatory versus blueprint development. Relief, rehab, and development. In, <clears throat> let's, let's imagine that this is uh, a poor individual... This is a poor individual, and let's imagine this person is in Haiti. And they're at a particular level of poverty, and then, and then the earthquake hits, and they're plunged downwards. During that period in which they are helpless, in which they can't help themselves, relief is the appropriate intervention. Relief is a handout. Relief is what the Good Samaritan did, that wasn't the point of the parable, but it's really helpful for teaching purposes. <clears throat> Re- relief is what the good Samaritan did for the guy who was lying aside, uh, alongside the road bleeding to death. He's lying there bleeding to death. He can't help himself. And the good Samaritan comes in and applies relief. He provides handouts. Handouts are appropriate when a person is completely incapable of helping themselves. Rehabilitation is restoring the person to their pre-crisis conditions. It's working with the Haitians 
to help them get back to where they were before the earthquake began. Then development is more that longer-term process of walking together with materially poor people in ways that are truly empowering, in ways that help to bring reconciliation with God's self, others, and the rest of creation. Now, here's the thing. Most poor people don't go through those three phases as you interact with them. Most materially poor people in the world are not in a crisis in which they are helpless. Most materially poor people in the world that you will encounter actually are in this situation. They're in a chronic state of poverty. They're not coming out of a crisis. And they're not helpless. They have capacity. They can do something. And so what most materially poor people in the world need is not relief or rehab. They need development. They need an approach that walks with them, trying to help them to experience greater healing in their relationships with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. Relief is a response to a crisis, man-made or natural, in which immediate and temporary emergency aid is provided. Relief is a handout in response to an emergency. If you're involved in the field of medicine, after an earthquake or hurricane, and you rush in with bandages, that's relief work, and it is appropriate during that phase. The basic dynamic in relief work is a provider and receiver relationship. One party is giving, and one party is receiving. Relief should only be prolonged when a person is incapable of contributing to their own improvement over a long period of time. Babies are an example. Babies don't do anything when they're born. They just lay there. You you feed them, you change your diapers, or you have your wife do it in my case. Having babies is pure relief mode. It's prolonged relief. There are people who are in comas who need prolonged relief. There are people who are severely mentally ill who need prolonged relief. But most people aren't in that situation. Most people have some capacity to do something. And in such a situation, to simply provide them with things cripples them. It creates dependencies, and dependencies don't lead to sustainability. Rehabilitation is the process of restoring people and communities to their pre-crisis conditions. The key thing in in rehabilitation is the people are no longer incapable of participating in their own improvement. They have capacity. The bleeding is stopped. And so you can move away from doing things to them or for them and start doing things with them. You start to ask them to participate in the rebuilding of Haiti. Not because you're an uptight Republican, although some of you look like you might be in that category. Not because you're stodgy Presbyterian, although some of you are really in that category by the looks of you. But because you love them and your goal is restoration. Your goal is restoration and to be human is to be a steward over creation, to use the gifts and capacities that you have to unpack God's creation. And so the reason to ask people to participate in their own improvement is because you're seeking restoration of people to creation. In Haiti, the best agencies began to do rehabilitation with some people in communities within a week. 
Within a week, the best agencies were saying to the Haitians, what can you contribute to the rebuilding of your community? Some of you know this better than I, but, but after a crisis, there's, there's a profound psychological impact. And one of the best ways to help people to get over the shock of what they've experienced is actually to get them working. Working has its own therapy to it because it's what we're wired for. It's what we're created for. And so as we work, we actually start to recover from the trauma of what's just happened. Development is the process of ongoing change that is moving people closer to being in right relationship with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. The basic dynamic in development, again, is to do things with people. You're asking them to contribute something to the process of their own improvement. The key dynamic is an empowering process. The key dynamic is an empowering process. How the well gets dug matters as much as the well being dug. How the house gets built matters as much as the house being built. Because the goal isn't stuff, the goal is reconciliation with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. I'm going to give you a crazy example. It's a concocted example. It's not true, but I want to illustrate my point. I want us to compare two short-term missions trips. This missions trip right here goes to Haiti, builds three houses, and gives three houses to the, three houses to the Haitians. It's a relief approach. Let's go build houses and give houses to Haitians. You build three houses, you give the houses to the Haitians, you come back and you say, we built three houses for the Haitians. A second short-term missions trip says, let's go to Haiti if we're asked to go by the Haitians, because it's their country. Imagine that. It's their country. They may have an opinion as to like, who can come into it and stuff. Let's ask the Haitians... If they want us to come. And when we get there, let's ask them what they want to do. And then let's ask them how to do it. And then let's support them as they try to do it. It's a different approach. So imagine this trip goes and says to the Haitians, what do you want to do? And and they say, let's build houses. And you say to the Haitians, how do you think it should be done? And they say, toothpicks. Let's try toothpicks. We've got a lot of toothpicks around here. And so what you do is, is you come alongside them, and, and all week you work with the Haitians on building three houses. At the end of the week, you, you, you go on the airplane, you're getting on the airplane, and, and a big wind comes through. And it wipes out all three toothpick houses. You've got toothpick rubble everywhere. Three houses from that short-term missions trip over there. This short-term missions trip, toothpick rubble. But as you get on the airplane, you notice something. The community leaders are standing around and they're, they're kind of scratching their heads and they're going, that didn't work that well. Let's try something different. Let's try something stronger. Let's try brick next time. If the goal is stuff, if the goal is to deliver stuff, this is the best short-term missions trip. If the goal is to help people to be restored to right relationship with God, self, others, and the rest of creation, this is a better one. Because what you've left behind are people, community leaders, who are trying to figure out how to steward their communities and how to make their communities better. 
Folks, what do you think it was like for Adam and Eve in the garden? Do you think God gave them the how-to manual for all of creation? So, guys, when I build a space shuttle, here's the handbook. It wasn't like that. God said to Adam and Eve, go figure it out. Adam and Eve had to use a trial and error process to figure out how God's creation worked. They had to water the trees. They had to make them grow. They said, well, let's try this. Gasoline. They put gasoline in the tree. The tree croaked. That didn't, that didn't work. Let's try water next time. I'm kind of making stuff up here a little bit. Just trying to see if you're all awake here in Louisville. i got my own version of the Bible here going on. Now, you get the point. What Adam and Eve were asked to do as human beings was to learn about God's creation. They would have had to use a trial and error process. To be human is to interact with the creation and to figure it out as you go. And so what real development is, is helping people to take ownership and to figure it out as they go. How the house gets built makes all the difference in the world. Because the second trip here left behind something sustainable. The second trip here left behind community leaders trying to figure it out. The first trip didn't leave that behind. The first trip left behind three houses that are going to fall apart. And nobody owns the process. Of those houses. Development is as much about how you do the work as what the work is. How you do it really, really matters. Now, if people don't come up to you with a big sign on saying, I need relief, or I need rehab, or I need development, they don't come with that on them. You've got to figure it out. It's not always clear. There's an example that your churches face every week. Every week in your churches, there are are, are people walking into your church asking for help with their electric bill. Does that person need relief or rehab or development? Oh boy, hard to know. Probably, they're probably not completely incapacitated, so probably not relief. But how much do you give? So hard. There's a helpful rule of thumb. That rule of thumb is this, avoid paternalism. Paternalism can be defined as habitually providing resources or assuming responsibilities that a person can provide or do for themselves. Don't constantly do things for people that they can do for themselves. That word habitually is extremely important. I've learned something in marriage. I'm 49. I've been married for, I don't know, I forgot how now. It's 20-something. Don't tell my wife. 20-something years. I've learned the secret to a healthy marriage. When I'm lying on the sofa watching the Green Bay Packers, and my wife says, Honey, would you please go and take the the, the laundry out of the washing machine and put it in the dryer? I've learned something. If I say, You know, honey, I I, I really can't, I'd like to do that for you, but, you know, it's kind of paternalistic for me to do something for you that you could do for yourself. It's not conducive to reconciled relationships. I've learned that I should get my lazy butt up off the couch and run in and, and take the laundry out of the washing machine and put it in the dryer. I do nice things for my wife. And she would say that this is really just her helping me help myself because it's my clothes. But, but, but you do things. You do things for one another just because you're nice to each other. 
It's okay to do nice things for people. But if you're habitually doing things that they can do for themselves, you can create dependencies. So ask yourself as you're working with the poor, are there things we could do here? Are there things we could do here that would be a little bit different? They might ask them to participate more in their own improvement. Asset-based versus needs-based development, the next issue. Asset-based versus needs-based development. What most Americans do is needs-based development. We walk into a poor community. Now, 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 folks, remember what we're trying to get over here. We've got this dynamic of people who have a God complex, who have a sense of superiority, who have a sense of that they're a little bit better, interacting with people with a sense of shame and inferiority. It's a bad mix. It's a bad mix. Particularly if you are a Caucasian American showing up anywhere in Africa, Asia, or Latin America, in which you are viewed as Mr. or Mrs. Moneybags, too. Really difficult dynamic, isn't it? What needs-based assessment does is it says, let's go into a community and find out what's wrong there. It's now trying to overcome this marred identity, God complex dynamic. I walk into a community and I say, Greg, how are you messed up? How are you particularly broken? And how could I save you? How could I fix what's lacking in you? Does that seem like a good kind of approach to overcome this God-complex, smart identity dynamic? It's a really bad approach. It actually exacerbates the very thing we're trying to get over. What needs-based development does is focus on the deficits and shortcomings in the individual or the community's life. Its implicit assumption is that solutions and resources will come from the outside. There's something wrong with you, and I am going to fix you. And I'm going to bring in stuff to fix you, because what's really wrong with you is what's lacking, and what's lacking I have. And so I'm going to bring this in to fix you. If we're looking for sustainable development, it's kind of a rough starting point. Because all of the resources in this model are coming from the outside. Nothing is being mobilized from the inside. Needs-based development does not identify and mobilize the assets of a person or a community in addressing their own needs. If you're looking for sustainable development, you wouldn't want to start off with this. Because it doesn't identify the good things that are already there. It does not mobilize the good things that are already there. It doesn't ask the local people to steward their own resources in order to improve their own situation. Asset-based development, in contrast, focuses on the capabilities, skills, and resources of the person or the community. It asks what's right there. It walks into a community and says to Greg, Greg, what gifts and abilities do you have? What dreams do you have? How can you use your gifts and your abilities to achieve your dreams? How could we walk alongside of you to help you in that process? The key task in asset-based development is to identify, mobilize, and connect assets that already exist within the individual or community. 
identify, mobilize, and connect what's already there. The biggest problem with asset-based development is that most of us don't really think it's doing anything. Most of us outsiders have a hard time believing that an asset-based approach is actually doing anything. There's a reason for that. We are very focused on material things. We are very focused on material progress. And so we tend to interpret we tend to interpret success as seeing more buildings being built or seeing more hospitals in place or seeing whatever the physical thing is. But if poverty is fundamentally relational, if poverty is fundamentally about restoring people being stewards of their communities, then the goal is different and the measures of success are different. Some people think that in asset-based development, you never bring in any resources from the outside. That's not true. In asset-based development, you will bring in outside resources. It could be money, could be medicine, could be better technology. But you bring those resources in appropriately. And by appropriate, we mean you bring them in in such a way that it it complements the resources that are already there. It doesn't swamp the resources that are already there or undermine the use of the resources that are already there. And here's the thing. Most Americans will tend to bring in outside resources in too large a quantities and too quickly. We will tend to bring in outside resources in too large a quantities and too quickly because our timetable is different from most people around the world and we're materialistic people. So we tend to bring in stuff too quickly. It is often the case that simply asking people to consider their gifts is poverty alleviation. So we wrote this book called When Helping Hurts, and we had to write a second edition, because everybody said, the first edition paralyzed us. We didn't know what to do. Now, one possibility for that is that we didn't write it very well. Maybe. My co-author probably wrote this chapter or something. I don't know. Another possibility is that what we said to do doesn't sound like it's doing anything. Because our lenses as Westerners are a little bit skewed. Think back to the example I gave you earlier. Which which short-term mission trip would you think is more successful? The one that built three houses or the one that ended up in toothpick rubble? I tend to think that's the more successful one because I think about buildings. But if you think about restoration of people to right relationship, this one's a better one. When you're dealing with people who, because of their race or their tribe or their gender, have been told sometimes for centuries that they are the scum of the earth, Asking a person like that to consider what gifts they have can be a powerful and empowering kind of exercise. To say to a person who's been told because they're from the wrong caste that they're the scum of the earth, to say to a person like that, what gifts do you have, 
is like a question from outer space. It introduces new possibilities and new hopes that perhaps weren't there before. Blueprint versus participatory development. What most Americans want to do is blueprint development. We sit in a boardroom and we figure out what people in Tibet need. And then we go and do it to them. And then we, 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 we want to scale it up, so we do it to the people in Nepal, then we do it to the people in China, then we do it to the people in Burma. We, we, we keep on doing it to them, because we've got to reach our numbers. It treats the poor like objects in a social science experiment that we go and work on, as opposed to treating them like human beings who live there and who are the primary stewards of their communities. Blueprint development is a prepackaged solution imposed upon poor people. It does it to them. It acts upon them. It's McDonald's franchising meets poverty alleviation. A packaged thing scaled up as fast as you can around the world. This can intensify the very dynamic we're trying to get out of, because we're acting like God in the lives of the poor around the world. Participatory development takes a learning process approach. It says, let's walk with the poor and ask their opinions about what should happen here, how it should happen. Let's ask them to make it happen. And then let's ask them at the end of the process how they think it went, not how we think it went. It treats them like human beings and and, and co-journeyers as opposed to people who we have to go and fix. This can help to overcome the dynamic that we're trying to get out of. A little learn if you're a donor in the room. This is a slow process. This is really slow and really nonlinear. It's starting to work with people without knowing what you're going to make at the end of the whole thing. It's a very hard thing to know how to fund Anybody who works in development will tell you that if you use the participatory methods, the project will be more sustainable. If the people own the well, they'll take care of it better. If the people own the idea of the malaria nets, they'll use them more. And that's true. But what we believe is that participation is not just a means to the end of getting the malaria nets or just a means to the end of getting the well dug. That having people participate in their own improvement is part of what it means to be human. To experience right relationship with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. So that participatory methods actually are an end in their own right. It's helping the poor to achieve the dignity that they so deserve. Asset-based participatory development can be done at the individual level or the community level. I've got to go a little faster. You can do this with a woman walking into your church asking for help with her electric bill. There's an asset-based participatory approach with that woman. What you say to that woman, ma'am, you're here asking for a check for your electric bill. But what we have to offer you is something so much more. Ma'am, what are your gifts? What are your abilities? What are your dreams? 
What steps are you going to take to get there? And how can we walk with you as you go along that way? It can also be done at a community level, trying to help the community as a whole to steward its gifts and its resources more effectively. When you work at the community level, it's kind of an interesting process. What you're trying to do is to mobilize community leaders to identify, connect, and mobilize community assets to solve the problems that the community cares about. Most of us don't work this way in ministry. The way that most of us do ministry is we minister to poor people. Or our church ministers to poor people. And there's something to be said for that. That's a good thing. In this approach of working at the community level, the primary actor isn't your church or your health center. The primary actor are community leaders. You're working hard to get community leaders to take actions on behalf of the community as a whole. It's more of a facilitating kind of process. Over time, the key actor becomes those community leaders, not you. There are some tools for pursuing asset-based participatory development. In the U.S., it's often called asset mapping. Asset mapping in the majority world of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, it's often called participatory learning and action. Participatory learning and action. This is a very awkward moment for me because in our room, sitting in the back, is one of the leading experts in the entire world on what I'm talking about. It's sort of like talking about economics with a Nobel laureate in economics in the room. And you're feeling like a dumb graduate student right now. Dr. Ravi, could you just stand up for a second for us? You have to stand up. Dr. Ravi Jayakaran is the, uh, has developed something called the 10 Seed Method for Participatory Learning and Action. He works with MAP International. Like Nobel Laureate level of this stuff is in the back row. Doesn't make me insecure or anything at all. Here we go. As you're trying to help a community to identify and mobilize its own assets, you can use participatory learning and action. It's a set of tools that rely heavily on visual techniques because you're trying to give voice to the voiceless in the community who might be illiterate. And so to level the playing field, instead of using a lot of words, they use a lot of pictures. The goal is to affect a power reversal. Instead of us going into that poor community in Uganda and fixing them, the goal is to have the poorest people in the community to be able to give, to have voice. To be able to say, these are my gifts. This is my vision for my life. The hope is to, to increase participation and to start the process of reconciling people to God, self, others, and the rest of creation. I'm going to show you a little video clip. It, it kind of starts off in the middle, so let me set it up just a little bit for you. The reason I'm showing you this clip is I want you to see just what some of these tools look like 
and how they're being used to give voice to very poor women in India. And what's going on here is that some community development people have already identified kind of the economic life of the men in the community. They've already learned how the men earn their money. They're having a hard time figuring out how the women are earning money because the women won't talk. And so you're going to see them using participatory learning and action tools to try to get the women to communicate what their lives are like and to help them to start to think about what their lives could look like. So it's going to kind of start mid-sentence. I apologize for that. The importance of fishing for the men was obvious. It was less clear how women benefit from using different resources. One team decided to explore this by developing a matrix on income sources with women in the neighborhood. We would like to talk with all of you. We want to learn things from you. But we do not know anything. At first, the women seem shy to talk with the team. They rarely ask their opinions. But after some assurance, they felt more at ease. The women chose objects to represent their sources of income, making patchwork, sewing, cleaning prawns, selling milk and dung cakes, making matting. They like doing the patchwork, but it has its disadvantages. There's less money in it than prawns. Why? Because it takes seven or eight days to make. The criteria that mattered to the women were money earned, time spent and labor used, availability of resources, and availability of the work itself. We clean prawns. We've got no choice. We start with many, and after cleaning, there's little left. We need the money, but we get very little. Do the men clean prawns? They only catch them. They explained that the men sell the prawns to middlemen. Next, the women discussed the benefits they get from selling milk. We sell the milk and we buy fodder for our cows and buffaloes and provisions for ourselves. Before one of the women started to fill in the matrix, the team member checked that she had understood how to use the stones. They looked at how the different activities could be compared in terms of earnings. The woman had chosen five as the highest score. <coughs> After some hesitation, she became more confident about how to use the stones. Prawn cleaning and making patchwork earn the most, and selling dung cakes the least. The matrix revealed that tending cows requires less work than cleaning prawns or making mats. They discussed the last criterion, availability of work. It became clear that prawn cleaning was an irregular job. The women obviously make a significant contribution to household income, and compared with the men, their income comes from more diverse sources. 
but it is still to a large extent dependent on healthy mangrove forests, providing a nursery for prawns and fodder for... Okay, now it doesn't look like the same activity as building a clinic or giving shots. It's a different kind of approach to working with the poor. It's an approach that can promote the reconciliation of people's relationships to God, self, others, and the rest of creation, which I suggest is the foundation of a community's life. You can do this in sector-specific ways. There are tools out there to help you do this in the area of health, if you're interested in that. And one of the readings I I signed for this uh, talks about that. I want to show you another video clip. This is from an organization, a Christian organization uh, out of the United Kingdom called Tear Fund. And they have some resources that they use to equip churches, churches in the majority world of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, to use participatory learning and action to start to bring change to their community. I just want to show you what that can look like uh, from one of their videos. Ke 
wana kedo soda bul na netin noisir nyam kwan sir wana ra pare ti da che para sinyam sokiru angara kipe ku papa ka eta nyanyara kuruke duchune gularari e jai papa ke mono ikikopu papa kwana emunana ra titibu atutu bet inyama te luisto kuniso emuno papa ka adukune togo le jai simiti kwap ayalamakwanangonwapapaka What did you see there that you liked? Nothing. There's a lot of Presbyterians in the room. <laughs> Hope. Good. What else? Yeah. The son was proud of his father, reconciled relationship. Excellent. Yeah. Promotes intergenerational change. Excellent. Mobilization of indigenous resources. Excellent. I think there's one more hand back here. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Lord, help me to do something. So he had some sense of his own agency, his own capacity to affect change. Excellent. Anybody else? Dreams for the future. Huge. Huge. Excellent. Pardon me. The church was the agent of change. I love that. The local church was being able, was being empowered to be salt and light in the body of Christ in its community. So huge. Those particular resources I just showed you are called Emoja. You can actually download them for free. In multiple languages. There, there's facilitators guides available. You just go to that website there. If you don't get it all copied down right now, all you do is you go into Google and you type in Emoja and Tear Fund. It'll take you to that thing. Okay, so Emoja and Tear Fund. It'll take you to that thing. That's not the only tools available. Dr. Ravi has some tools. Again, the 10 seed method. There are other organizations that have tools as well. These are just very, very accessible. They're very gospel-focused. They're very church-centered, and they're free. If you have any more questions, there's a book you can buy. I think it's probably for sale here that I hear is pretty good. Shameless commercial. We're about done. Are there any quick questions at the end that Dr. Avi could answer for you? Yeah. You kind of gave us polar opposites where you build three buildings and leave them, or you let them build something that, that is not the same. Right. Is there anywhere in the middle? Yeah, yeah. So this, <laughs> so this brother saying, Brian, you kind of gave us two extreme stories. The one extreme of you go and you build three houses and you give it to them. The other one was you work with them to build three toothpick houses that crumbled. Is there a happy medium? Yes. If you want to know the honest truth, if I were in that situation, I might have said to the Haitians, toothpicks are a bad idea. Let me show you what happens and blow and have it fall over. 
So yeah, I, I don't think we want to um, uh, forsake the gifts that God has given to us. Sometimes we have wisdom. Sometimes we have knowledge. And we do want to bring that to bear. And, and uh, we, we do want to use that on behalf of God's kingdom, on behalf of the poor. And so uh, you want to find some middle ground where you're kind of walking with them, trying to hear their ideas, and then sharing some of yours too. Yep. Thank you for asking that question, because they're all going to walk out of here going, this guy thinks weird stuff. <laughs> yeah. Excellent question. So what do you do in a situation where the person doesn't actually want to help themselves? That gets at the issue of people's receptivity to change. There's something called a SARS continuum of receptivity to change. and It's found in this book. But the basic idea here is that some people simply aren't ready to change. Sometimes people don't see that there's a problem. Or even if they see a problem, they don't think it's their responsibility to take any actions to affect change. One of the ways of thinking about these kinds of tools, both at the individual level and at the community level, is that they are to some degree a diagnostic tool for discerning how receptive the person is to lasting change. Let me bring it home real quickly. That lady who comes into your church asking for help with her electric bill. I've mentioned to you that you can use an asset-based approach with her. Uh, there's actually a tool that you can download for free from the CRC Deacons of Canada that helps you to create intake policies for that woman. And if that woman is simply unwilling to even fill out the form or even answer the questions and says, I'm simply not interested in that, I just want the check, it is my view that the loving thing to do is to let her walk away. And as she leaves, to say to her, we're still here for you. We're still here. You've asked us for money. We, we, ha- we want to give you something so much greater than that. We're still here for you. If you change your mind, please come back. But I actually think that letting people walk out the door is actually a loving thing to do in some situations. Yeah. <clears throat> You can download it from the CRC Deacons of Canada. CRC Deacons. I think if you Google that, it will come up. They have a website, a downloadable tool. I'm not trying to sell books, but there's a reference for it in the book somewhere. I I, I think it's in a footnote or something. But it's there. Yeah. It's in there. Yeah. Oh, great question. This this woman just said, she noticed in the video there's no translation needed between the woman uh, and, sorry, the the poor women and the facilitator of the exercise. She said, how much is lost when we as Americans go over and don't speak the language? What a great question. It is my view that we are not the right people to be doing that exercise for all kinds of reasons. Language reasons, cultural reasons, 
the raising of expectations of outside resources pouring in from America. All kinds of reasons. My view is that our role is to actually help pay for indigenous people to do those exercises. Thank you for asking that question. Mike. Yeah, so this brother said, it's kind of hard to go anywhere in the world um, without seeing a lot of American resources or other foreign resources pouring in. What do you do? How do you do this when everybody else is giving handouts? We have the same thing going on in, our, in, in America. I, uh, one of the members of my board is very, very wealthy. And he lives in a major American city, and his son lives four blocks away from his house in a homeless shelter. Very wealthy individual. His son is four blocks away in a homeless shelter. And my friend has tried to hold his son accountable. It doesn't work. Because the homeless shelter gives him bed and food for doing nothing day in and day out. And the, the young man gets up every morning and he goes to the library and plays video games and goes back for lunch to the homeless shelter. His life is video games in the homeless shelter. The fact that the homeless shelter is acting that way makes it impossible for the father to get to his son. Same kind of dynamic in Kibera, in a slum in Nairobi. Foreign resources pouring in. It's one of the hardest places in the world to actually do asset-based community development because bad, bad, bad relief work drives out good development work. What do you do? You run. Go somewhere where they ain't. I don't know. Dr. Rob, you have an answer to that question? That's a hard one. You're not going to say anything. You've got, you've got to look... That's that receptivity thing. Sometimes the people themselves get sick of the game. You've got to find people who are sick of the game. Yeah. If you're there and you're persistent, eventually some people might get sick of the game, and want lasting change. Those are the people most receptive to change. That's true in our context. Yeah. Can you stand up? So they get sick of it. 
Thank you for that. We have to end. Thank you so much. And again, skip the first 15 minutes tonight. <laughs>